you in under the wheels. How affected. Welcome to Under the Wheels. I'm Matthew. And I'm Gabe. And today we are talking about Steven Soderbergh's latest movie, No Sudden Move, which I thought for the longest time was called No Sudden Moves with an S. So that's been fun trying to learn. I, I thought it was No Sudden Moves until I wrote a review on it, and then I was like, oh, it's not called that. <laughs> no wonder No Sudden Moves doesn't come up on Google. <laughs> I also wonder if that's just the algorithm, like, giving it a big F.U. to that movie. It's like, you're not part of, I don't know, a major studio, really. Even though it was technically no sudden movie. You're not part of YouTube Red or whatever they're trying to do now. (laughs) YouTube Premium, because they realized YouTube Red sounded like a porn site. That was the dumbest thing communist porn site. Why are there so many penises on this website? Ugh, it's redistribution of nudity. We have equal amounts of nudity, men and women. Well, okay, well, I, I guess so. Don't worry, it's state sanctioned. <laughs> can you imagine that if like the government just funded pornography? I mean, can you I guess imagine if you like you're, do, but... you're in the you're getting your like, you know, it, I don't know how what communist Russia was actually like, um, but. <laughs> The but. stereotype that everyone like scares you with when you're a kid is like, oh yeah, they you can't you have no choice. They assign everything. So like, you know, you get your job assigned to you basically. Mm-hmm. Um based on like, you know, how what the state needs at that point. It's like, oh, we need more coal, you're going to be a coal miner. Uh, <laughs> we need, I, think I know where you're going with the this. The Soviet people need more pornography. You're going to be pornography actor. <laughs> Sounds like that bad Nick Schwarzden movie that came out. I'm going to be a star in pornography with my tiny penis. Like, mm. what? That There was that, that one, like, Adam Sandler produced Nick Schwarzden movie where he was, like, the son of a porn star or something. And so then he, that, like, naturally meant that he was also going to be a porn star. But he, I haven't seen it. Let's, stip, let's start there. I don't, it's not my genre of movie. Generally, comedy isn't my genre of movie to watch. Um, well, it's because they haven't made a good comedy in like ten years or more. Yeah, I would. Say, I think everyone likes comedies. More. There's just no good ones anymore. They used to. There used to be good ones. Well, I like. I mean, I'm too. I'm too pretentious for comedy because I like. I like actual good, fundamental filmmaking with my comedy, which apparently makes me a douchebag or of some sort. So, you know, I want my long Scorsese tracking shot in a comedy and not like done shittily for the sake of being a shitty tracking shot i want it to like be better i just want head explosions that's all i want why well, I, I don't they don't do enough of that in comedy if they did that in comedy more often then we'd be good but scanners but as a comedy that's my pitch <laughs> i have no supplemental materials for that just a tagline <laughs> scanners but a comedy oh man which you can watch on HBO Max, which is uh, the same place you can watch No Sudden Move. Yeah, that's new. that's like seems to be Steven Soderbergh's new home because he did uh, Let Them All Talk for HBO Max yeah, as well. Yeah, he did. Which like yeah. Soderbergh, it's crazy that he retired because 
his retirement was just like a normal break between movies for most people. But for him, his one to two movie a, a year pace stopped for one year. And then he started up again. <laughs> yeah, but in that time, he directed two seasons of television. I know, which is so. just mind-boggling. It's just like, I'm retiring from filmmaking. And then a year later, I'm back. And then he makes like 10 movies in the span of, you know, a minute. One of which is no sudden move. <laughs> <laughs> and he always attracts great casts for his movies. Mm-hmm. Like, he's... Uh, I mean, but he, probably because they come in and do a day of shooting. Like, I was... I was watching the movie and I was like, Ray Liotta's in this? It's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. he's only in there for a day. Like Brendan Fraser, he's probably in there for like three days. You I'm, know? I'm like, so glad that Brendan Fraser's back in something. Yeah. He's been he's been regularly in things for a couple years now because he's in the Doom Patrol show, which apparently is really good. But he and Timothy Dalton are are stars in that. So, you know, hmm. he's he's he has he's had regular work over the last couple of years. But people haven't really been paying too much attention. I think it, it was with Trust is where he came back. The the uh, Danny Boyle produced show that was the same story as that Ridley Scott movie where they recast Kevin Spacey. Mm. Um, oh, they had a, uh, a, the Getty family. Yes. Was it the Getty yeah. family? Yeah. It was. They had a movie come out. And then later on, FX produced a series based off of it. And... It was just like the weirdest thing because I would have thought that Ridley Scott would have done a series based off of it and uh, Danny Boyle would have made a movie, but it was the other way around. So I always have to like mm. retinker. And the Mark Wahlberg role in the movie is a composite character that ended up being Brendan Fraser in the show where they make him a, like a cowboy. And I was like, that's interesting. Huh. That's more interesting than just generic Mark Wahlberg character. So I always wanted to watch the show, but I, I never did because I don't really watch that much television. All right. But anyway, so, <laughs> I'm going back through Steven Soderbergh's career. Yeah. And um, yeah, holy fucking shit. He's made a lot of movies. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, we know the MO on Soderbergh, but I guess as a refresher for our audience, Soderbergh, most interesting man in filmmaking, mainly because he's apparently bored by everything all the time, so he has to keep himself entertained, and as a result, he keeps us entertained, um, is always trying to find like shortcuts and weird ways of doing things, which makes, his, which makes all of his movies, even if they're not good, very interesting to watch. Um, he also makes an insane number of movies at a time. Like He made one movie every year from 1995 through uh 2002 at least one movie if not two every year and some of these movies include uh let's see schizopolis the limey aaron brockovich traffic oceans 11 and and the solaris remake he made aaron brockovich (laughs) and traffic the same year took a one-year break then continued the trend of making at least one if not two movies every year from 2004 all the way to 2013 in 2013 he directed both side effects and behind the candelabra then retired quote unquote for a year (laughs) then came back or no for actually for a couple years yeah uh, yeah wow he retired from 2013 to 2017 and since 2017 he has made at least one if not two movies every year until now he almost missed this year 
because of COVID, but they yeah. they were able to film everything in time because it's Steven Soderbergh. Yep. And he's um, insane. He is insane. And he has a talent for um for thrillers especially, I think. Like thrillers and crime movies and heist movies. Um I mean he's done plenty of other stuff. Like he directed Magic Mike. He directed yep. uh, Che, which is more of like a biographical drama. You know, he directed Traffic, which is like it's it's like a discount Amoris Peros from what I've seen. Um, and he's done a lot of like bizarro experimental stuff. He did Sex Lies and Videotape, which was kind of the it's the original like indie Sundance drama. But his talent is for crime movies and heist movies, and. We're so lucky that No Sudden Move is one of those and not something else. <laughs> well, it should also be noted that, generally speaking, Soderbergh shoots his own movies and he edits his own movies. He uses oh, yeah, he's the entire production crew for a lot of it. Yep. Yep. He will and also write I, a lot of his movies, but has started outsourcing the writing either to other people or to himself under a pseudonym. That, I was wondering about that because I know that... Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, or doing rewrites on movies. Because I know he was, I think, like, um, uh, what was it? Schizopolis was kind of the, oh, I guess it was Grey's Anatomy, was, like, the last movie that he did where he was, like, doing everything. And then they gave him Out of Sight. And Out of Sight was where he was like, okay, maybe I should step back from the writing. But, mm. you know, as as time's gone, I think Traffic is the first one that he shot himself. And then starting with, I'm guessing, I, I don't even know when he started editing all of his own movies. I definitely by Bubble he was, and Bubble was was unique because that was, um, that was the platform release where they were releasing it in theaters, they were releasing it on video, and they were releasing it on video on demand all at the same time. And they were like, oh, we'll see what happens with this. So that was mm -hmm. the big thing about uh, about Bubble. Oh, he also directed Contagion, which is worth mentioning for people who freaked out during the pandemic and yeah. couldn't stop watching Contagion. <laughs> yeah, he did that one too. So he's, I, I think he's hit like almost every genre he would want to hit, but the mm -hmm. one that makes him the most money and the one that he's the best at, but he has also kind of done the most innovation for other people to copy is definitely the heist movie and the, and the crime thriller. I would agree. With yeah, that. for sure. Cause I mean, the limey oceans 11 and um out of sight are three of the greatest movies i have ever seen in my entire life and they're all the same genre <laughs> and they're all directed by steven soderbergh yeah and they're all done within five years of each other yeah they're all very close together in terms of when they were made um and then of course the double nomination for aaron brockovich and traffic it's like geez, fuck. god damn god damn it soderbergh yep. Uh, very so I guess few directors have is, done that, but they have. Yeah. So I guess the question is, there's a couple questions. Sure. How does No Sudden Move stack up within Soderbergh's canon, number one? Number two, how has he changed from, I guess, the glory days of the limey out of sight and Ocean's Eleven to now? That's a good question. Um I think no like there's a lot of movies on Soderbergh's list that I like but don't that but like aren't going to make my list anytime soon. I think my favorite of the ones that he's done recently is Logan Lucky. 
That's my favorite kind of as like well. His, his comeback movie. Um, where do I put this, though, in comparison? Because it's basically, I either liked it more than Logan Lucky or I liked it less. And I think I like it l a little bit less than Logan Lucky, but only a little bit. Because, I also like um, it a little bit less than Logan Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, I When it started out, I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? But... To me, the movie got better the more it went on. Like, the more the things spiraled out of control, the more I enjoyed it. Um, so, as far as, like, where he's gone, I feel like he... I sometimes wonder if he's getting too stripped down as a filmmaker. And and here's why. Like, if you... The start of Ocean's Eleven, and the start of Out of Sight is really good, too. But the start of Ocean's Eleven is literally just, like, a handheld shot. George Clooney walks in. And he gets and he gets put on parole and it's done in a really, you know, they they have a lot of good exposition. They convey a lot of style in that scene. You know exactly who the main character is. And then the movie starts and it just rolls like they don't stop to really explain anything if they don't have to. Everything is kind of in service of moving the story forward. And there's a lot of like cool stylization in it. That's very Soderbergh. -y. Um, I feel like he's become very meat and potatoes in that sense now where like i think that i'm trying to remember if there's any any stylization in the movie aside from the really awkward wide angle lens that it's used yeah, for most of the movie incredibly distracting wide angle lens they use yeah from, yeah that was so weird I'm, it hurt my head to watch the entire edge of the frame like warp and warble anytime he moves the yeah. camera because he and he loves to move the camera Yes. And I like I hate to say that because I normally I like weird lens distortion, but it was it, it was distracting to the point that it actually took away from the movie. Even yeah. though they have a really wide angle lens in Logan Lucky that distorts things as well. I think it's just the lens he likes to use. Mm -hmm. Um well, so let's see. What do you think? I mean, the movie has it's got the weird wide angle lens. It's got a little bit less of the color washes that he loves so much. Yeah, that's true, which is actually kind of nice. I like those, generally. I know that they can be... Just, like, in Haywire, they're really distracting. Um, yeah. But generally, I like the colored washes that he uses. Um, so, yeah, it felt... it. This felt really low budget. Um, yeah. Like, it's very... All the sets and locations are very sparse. There's not a lot of people anywhere at any time. It's all these wide-angle lenses in close rooms. Um, so it has this very paranoid, boxed-in feel to it, which I guess works considering that, you know, it's about two criminals, Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro, who don't know each other, don't trust each other. They team up on a job, the job goes wrong, and they kind of have to find their way out. And so I guess that boxed-in feeling kind of helps in an atmospheric sort of way. Although I love that scene in the rain with Ray Liotta. That just, it looks so gorgeous. But, um, yeah. so yeah, there's that. I think the other thing is that, at least with this and the laundromat, his movies seem to be getting more complicated in terms of plotting. Like, there's just a lot of different narrative threads that are getting juggled all at once that have to tie together somehow. Um, and he does it really well. Um, him and the, you know, whoever's writing this, um, if it's right. not him. Which I, you know, I was really impressed by because I think the fact that there is just so much going on all the time really helps uh, 
it helped maintain my interest at least. But I think one thing that kind of sticks out is he seems to be focusing, like his best movies aren't necessarily about anything other than just what they're about. Mm-hmm. Whereas it seems like, I don't know if it started before, but since his comeback, his movies seem to be more focused on social and political issues. You know, especially yeah. wealth disparity, the gap between the, the rich and the poor, and, um, you know, kind of the desperate lengths that people who have nothing will go to to have something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, have, you like if you start with Logan Lucky, it's about you know, kind of forgotten and disenfranchised parts of America that have just kind of been left behind in the 21st century and they're trying to, you know, stake a claim to a world that's forgotten them. Um, And the laundromat is literally just a, like, docudrama about global money laundering. It You can't get more baldly political than that. Um, yeah. and then And then No Sudden Move is about gentrification it's about monopolistic business practices in the automotive industry specifically but in america generally you could extrapolate that to you know social media today how the auto industry is portrayed in this um racial issues gentrification you know it's in the 60s there's a lot of tension there's uh redlining you know uh, uh, black neighborhoods getting turned over and demolished so yeah, it seems like that's becoming a bigger part of his movies these days than it was mm-hmm. before. Where they before that's they seemed true. to focus more on, you know, they they were just about what they were about. Like they were about the psycho the characters, the psychology of them, and their interactions with each other. And that was kind of it. Yeah, and well, I I always think of because probably the one that I saw that I was sort of the least engaged on was the informant. Um, but I, even that I remember as being like very character driven. And I, I think there was a section in there where he was doing a lot of character driven stuff. Um, cause he did Che and the girlfriend experience, which I tried watching and I couldn't, I couldn't really get through. So it makes sense that he's moved to sort of more social issues and, and things like that. Cause I mean, you know, Don Cheadle as a character is painted in very broad strokes. Benicio del Toro is painted in broad strokes, but the underlying issue is they just want money. They want more money. And then as sort of a backdrop, especially in No Sudden Move, the car thing seems like it's a backdrop for all of these things to happen until, you know, our cameo character gets up and just basically explicitly talks about the socioeconomic issues of the day. But um, yeah, that's, that is an interesting observation. I never really thought about that, uh, but it is true. I mean, although I haven't seen High Flying Bird or Unsane or any of his iMovie, his uh, iPhone movie stuff. Not very interesting to me, <laughs> but I don't know where to go from here. I was going to say, I just feel like to me, his movies get stripped down, but also like a lot of what he does and a lot of how he makes his movies now seems to be getting more sort of stale, maybe a little bit stale. Like I still love all of the stuff he does and I love the way he, the way he shoots his scenes and the way he approaches his characters, but it is starting to get like, I can almost predict how he's going to be formatting something sounds bad but i but i mean <laughs> that does sound bad i well i just i feel like like when i when a when a steven soderbergh movie starts now i'm like okay he's he's only gonna have like five pieces of music that play throughout the entire movie and um 
and like the actors are going to be really good but it's also going to be sort of um what's the word it's like um a lot of the acting in his movies are kind of um uh, subdued Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really like over the top and when, which means that when someone does go over the top or when there is a character who's over the top, like I always, I forget that Daniel Craig was in Logan Lucky every now and then. Cause I always think of it as just like the Channing Tatum, um, uh, Adam driver heist movie. But like when you mm-hmm. have your over the top characters, they're really over the top. God, I, I'm thinking about Logan Lucky and how he's like, let me give you a science lesson quickly. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's another thing that he does in his movies where it's just like, let me just go on this really random tangent to explain this thing that's like I know oh, that's really interesting. I love that stuff. Well, it's yeah, like our, in this movie too. the cameo character in No Sudden Move who just talks and talks and talks and talks. Yeah. And talks. Yeah. Which I thought was appropriate because like there's there's two ways of doing that. There's leaving the camera on that character to talk or there's having that character say what he needs to say while the other characters do things that are important for the plot to move forward. Mm-hmm. So at least they had that going for it. Yeah. Well, it's just, I think it, you're right. It does fit because that character is extremely arrogant. Mm-hmm. Which is like, unlike some other movies, his arrogance is like rewarded in the end and nothing, like nothing goes wrong for him and everything is perfect. But again, that's, well, that's again, that it's part sense. of like the, the messaging of the movie, I think is that, yep. you know, the rich get away. Yeah. Um, so let's let's take it back because we were talking about Brendan Fraser, and I think like the first thing that I thought of when I saw Brendan Fraser in this movie was I thought I was watching Touch of Evil. <laughs> <laughs> you thought he was Orson Welles. Well, I thought he was trying to do like an Orson Welles impression, and um, legit he put on all that weight, and it's for a Darren Aronofsky role, which not quite sure why you would do that for a Darren Aronofsky role, but okay, we'll go with it. So well, Brendan Fraser is. Like he's like kingpin size in this movie. Yeah, he's huge. I and he also like I wonder if it if if like the weight gain affected his voice. Although all, almost all the characters talk in sort of like this like really deep raspy kind of voice. Like Don Cheadle, who you know Brendan Fraser must have sucked all of the fat out of. Um, he talks in a in a raspy voice too throughout most of the movie. Yeah, is Don Cheadle still in the Avengers stuff or not anymore? Uh, he was in the first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, so he's still making that Marvel money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he looks like I don't know. He he looks really like lean and old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably because he is pretty old at this point. Like he's not a he's not a young guy anymore. I miss Terrence Howard. A... Anyway, I, I um... know. I was gonna say like John Don Cheadle in this movie. Don Cheadle is kind of like soured in my mind just because of the whole stuff that happened with Terrence Howard and in the iron man movies it's like it's, it's just fucked up man yeah i mean i still like don Cheadle generally and he's he's like again all the actors are really good in no sudden move and there's like a shit ton of them too because you got don Cheadle. yep uh benicio del toro is your leads you got ray liotta you got yep. brendan frazier you got bill duke david harbour amy bill Simons. duke was awesome bill duke is always awesome yeah he is it, uh, it also helps that he's like seven feet tall or whatever. Uh, just towers over everyone. John Ham, yep. John Ham as like the most John Ham character ever. Yep. And did you know? Did you see? I'm gonna just if you haven't seen it yet. Matt Damon's in the movie. Did you see Matt him? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yes, dude. 
By the way, speaking of people who got really thin during COVID, like, I'm pretty sure Brendan Fraser sucked the fat out of Matt Damon as well. Jesus, like, Matt Damon looks really good. He looks Ben <laughs> Affleck good. Like, damn. But, like, all of those guys are generally good. I think this is Brendan Fraser's first movie by Soderbergh, though. I don't think he's ever been in anything with Soderbergh. I think yeah, it's the same with Ray so. Liotta, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're... Um, they're all really good. Cheadle's always good in Ray Liotta's stuff, or Ray Liotta's stuff, <laughs> in Steven Soderbergh's stuff. Benicio del Toro is also always really good. The first movie I liked Benicio del Toro in was um, was Traffic. So oh, okay, yeah, and he's really good in this too. Like all the performances are. That's the other thing. Like Soderbergh's really good at getting really good performances out of people because like ba- he basically made George Clooney a star. You know, yeah, like, yeah from dusk till dawn help but out of sight that's out of sight was the one that made him from like oh he's tv handsome to like yeah he's a he's a he's a motherfucking star yep so and then like i feel like soderbergh's done more to repair julia roberts's career than than anything else and yeah i i it's like david harbour is having like a having a good couple years now because like he was in this and he was in black widow and mm-hmm. actually he was like when I saw him in Black Widow, I was like, did they shoot this scene like at the same time that they were shooting No Sudden Move? Because he looks the same at <laughs> the very beginning of the movie. Like, <laughs> I know. Like, the gut is sucked in and the hair looks like nice and, you know, it's it's done properly. And, and uh, yeah, he was a lot of fun, the movie. I also agree with you that I think having so many different points of view was sm- a smart way to go in the movie because there were so many interesting characters or interesting broad strokes of characters mm-hmm. that everything was able to wrap up in a very, in a very good way. I like, I actually liked the way how everything wrapped up, even though at one point I felt like it was, uh, I felt like it was like a bad student film or devil all the time. I was like, uh, what are you <laughs> doing here? Soderbergh? <laughs> What's going on, man? Um, I think you know exactly the the thing I'm talking about. I know, but it's like I don't know it. That that scene you're referencing in the what is it like they they drive into that field. It's it did remind me a little bit of the devil all the time, but it's it's mm-hmm. done so much better, especially because it's just like short, sudden, and then it's done. Yep. Yeah, and then she gets pulled over afterwards. I was like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's satisfyingly funny. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Was it was it what you were expecting the movie itself? Um, yes and no. I was expecting. I don't know. I, I guess I was just expecting more, like more things to happen, more, um, of a budget, <laughs> or at least the appearance <laughs> of more of a budget. Well, they um, had to get all those classic cars. Yeah. So any anytime someone does a period piece, I'm always I, that's that's kind of what I go to is like, well, they had to. They had to pay for a lot of classic period stuff and, and yeah. all the, the manufacturing and stuff. But I, I, I think you're right. I think he's, like I said, he's getting to the point where he's too stripped down. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, I think that was it. I think it was just more stripped down than what I was thinking it was going to be or what I was hoping for. Um, but yeah, it was about it was about what I expected. I mean, I enjoyed it. I would say it's a solid witness. Um, you know, and it. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because the stripped down feel works in its favor sometimes and works against it elsewhere. I don't know. It's tough. 
Yeah, it's the other thing I'm I, I think of, and I, I th yeah, I would say it's a solid witness. I I definitely think it's at least worth watching, um, like most of his stuff, but I, but but not worth watching in a way of like it's a train wreck, but worth watching in that there's some stuff he does really well, and some interesting turns that the movie takes that is not quite what I would have liked. Like I think the first the I I I do think it takes a little too long for the interesting part of the movie to get going. Like I think the movie mm. the main point where the movie turns and becomes really engaging is after they they go to the green safe, they come back from the green safe, they go into the house and then Don Cheadle shoots Kieran Culkin. Like I think that's where the movie really started to pick up for me. It was it was sort of building nicely, but I had a hard time getting into it immediately and i i really hate to harp on that camera i think it was the camera the re <laughs> the really weird wide angle camera was just that 18 millimeter lens or 16 millimeter lens or whatever he was using it there was too much um there's too much bending at the frames for me and it just was like oh my god this is really bugging me it's like yeah it's, it's it's all a weird it's a bunch of things that come together to create this weird effect where it's like you know, it's this very stripped down feel. Mm -hmm. It's very, like a lot of stuff takes place inside, like a few characters yeah. in a room. And it's got this weird, like ultra wide angle distorted lens. So like everything feels really like boxed in and like uncomfortably intimate. You know, it's like, it's almost like a feeling yeah. of, like there's four characters having a very intense conversation and you're like standing in the middle of them, like looking back over your shoulder at each one as they say something and be like, wait, 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 what's going on? Don't shoot me. Um, yeah. Which like it works, but I don't know if it works for like, you know, an entire movie necessarily. Yeah, like you have to branch out a little bit. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. I'm trying to think because, like, again, most of it worked. I'm just trying to think of like what didn't work because, like, I like the Soderbergh character moment stuff where, like, for example, he uh, he uh, Benicio del Toro throws the blanket over the woman and he's like, "Hey, I gotta my mask is bugging me, so I gotta." So he throws the blanket over the woman and takes off mm -hmm. his mask and starts like <laughs> eating her, like her pudding or whatever. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I like, like, I, I like shit like that in it. Or like, um, uh, Del Toro and Don Cheadle are in the room and they're both laying on beds and, and he's like, and Cheadle's like, Hey, you know, instead of just getting the money for one thing, we can get the money for, from like multiple people. Cause everyone's after this thing. So we could get a lot of money that way. I was like, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting conversation to have. I like that stuff, but I, I guess I, I guess part of it is just like there are storylines that are happening that I feel like either, even even as abbreviated as they are, I just wish they weren't there. Like they're distracting or something. Like um, hmm. like David Harbor is good in the movie, but like I don't know for some reason every time he had to go and talk to his goddamn the thing with the secretary. I was, yeah, I was like, I know this is a traditional '50s thing, but man, I I'm just bored. Mm -hmm. Or like the so the, is his wife, um, is she gay? Like, is she trying to get with their friend's wife? I don't know. There was that's definitely how that, that scene that between scene. them reads. Yeah, I don't know. 
I think the fact that we both got that out of that scene either says something about the kinds of movies and media we've been consuming, or he was making a comment about the suppressed nature of homosexuality in the 1950s as represented by two housewives. It just felt so... Um... What's that Todd Haynes movie with Kate Blanchett? Carol? Carol. It felt so Carol yeah. when they were doing that. I'm like, this is just... Why are they throwing like a little Carol moment in here? It's just it, it's weird. It, one of my things with this is that you know again it seems to have more of a social eye than mm-hmm. his a lot of his earlier stuff, but it all a lot of it feels like weirdly either tacked on or ham fisted. Like that scene between yeah. the two wives is like this is just a weird thing to tack on for like five seconds, you know? Um, yeah. Or, like, the the moment where Don Cheadle is picking up his suitcase from what seems like his, like, ex-wife or his daughter or sister or something. Um, yeah. You know, and he has a conversation with the guy in that house about just, like, you know, the current socioeconomic problems in in the hood. And it's like this mm-hmm. seems weirdly ham-fisted, and then and then when Matt Damon shows up, Matt Damon is the the auto executive who's behind all of these blackmail and extortion schemes going on. Um, you know, he just starts monologuing about sociopolitical issues <laughs> and about like the the auto industry, how they have a stranglehold on everything, and they'll never have to. And then they have the like really weird ending scroll. Like that, I guess apparently we needed to end this movie, I which guess. was kind of it was very um, uh, that felt very strange too. Where I was like, oh, this is a cool history lesson, and like I would show it to students if I could, you know. But it's rated R, so I can't. Maybe that was why I felt kind of disconnected from it. Also, I didn't realize until the movie really kind of got going that it was taking place in the fifties. Um, and by God going, I mean like in, within the first five or so minutes. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, it's the 1950s and redlining and life sucks and, you know, gentrification and all that stuff. And I just, I, I think the beginning was very unfocused and needed to kind of get going a bit better, a bit faster, even though it does pick up really quickly. Cause Brendan Fraser, you see, you have like, within three scenes they set up Brendan Fraser and Benicio del Toro. No, okay I think it's, with, I think it, I think it's the beginning to me. I'm okay with the beginning being kind of protracted cuz it's not like it's not like it's short on action or anything. It's just that like uh you know how in the Simpsons every episode starts with like a a B plot that then introduces the A plot and the real A plot doesn't kick in until about a third of the way through. Yeah. This movie is kind of the same structure where it's like, there's a B plot that kicks off the A plot. And basically there's just a very long first act where it's, you know, this one, uh, I guess like hostage job um hostage slash blackmail job that's the b plot that then kicks off the a plot when it goes wrong um and i'm okay with that 
You know, that didn't bother me too yeah. much. Even though the, yeah. the A plot that is the rest of the movie is, I think, a lot more interesting than that B plot. I think it's I think it's getting everything set up in your first act that's bugging me. Because I I think because like you you had mentioned a scene that I completely forgot and I I forgot that they introduced Benicio del Toro by like he's having an affair with this woman and I was, and then it maybe it's just I'm getting bad with faces but I thought that the woman that he was having an affair with when they cut to the wife I thought it might have been the housewife that they were like holding up and I was like I don't think that's the case but it's still really weird like they, their hairstyles are too close or something so I think it was just setting up all of the characters to me took too long or the way that the movie started was too abrupt. Because like I said, once the movie got going, I mean, the movie got going and I didn't want it to stop. Like as mm-hmm. it was rolling on, I, although near the end, I was kind of wondering as he's like tying up all of the loose ends. I'm like, all right, you're taking an awful long time to make those bows a little bit more streamlined, I think would have been better because they have what Bill Duke comes in, grabs Don Cheadle and then um benicio del toro makes away with the money and then like the police are after him but he finds his girlfriend and then his girlfriend kills him and takes the money and by the way she formerly killed ray Liotta, and so i guess maybe that set up that she's like a stone cold killer and then like don Cheadle's in a car and you're like well those plots are resolved but then the money gets back to matt damon and i know i'm spoiling this whole part of it here (laughs) um maybe i'll put like a spoiler thing in it but like it just it like it wasn't wrapping everything up wasn't as clean as i would have liked but again it's almost too clean for me you thought the overall result maybe was but the execution of it to me felt like it was it's like i guess you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet with the eggshells in it that's what it felt like to me like on the execution part like they cracked the egg inside the pan and then spent like a couple minutes taking out the eggshells with a spoon. If I'm doing a bad metaphor. Does that, does that make sense? I guess. I think I know what you mean. Like you're, it, it's not the ending. It's how the ending was compiled. Yes. What did you think of that last scene? <sighs> Was the last scene where he gets his five thousand dollars and he's walking away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I, I. I. Anytime something like that happens, it always makes me wonder. Like, man, if he had, if they had just paid him five thousand dollars, he would have been fine at the very beginning of the movie. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I didn't hate it, but I thought it was so weird that Bill Duke just turned on a dime. Like he was ready to kill Don Cheadle. Full forward, business decision, good decision, but instead he didn't because Don Cheadle only wanted $5,000. Well, I think there's also like a sense of they still have, there's still like a feeling of loyalty to each other. Because I think, I can't, I don't remember the exact line, but I think Bill Duke asks him, because Don Cheadle tries to bring him into this job as like an apology. And, you know, then Bill Duke essentially kidnaps him and is going to kill him. And he says, you know, what made you think I, you could tr- I could be trusted? And then I, I think Don Cheadle says something like, because you can be trusted. Yeah. So I think they still, both of them still feel kind of a connection to each other. Where he's like, you know what, like, you know, we've been through a lot of shit. Maybe it's not the end of the world if I just let you go with with the 5K that I do owe you. 
what was their relationship? Well, Bill Duke is a local ki- like crime kingpin, and I think um, Don Cheadle worked Who- for him. Because I mean, the whole thing, the whole backstory, which they just kind of give in like little bits here and there, right? Which I like. That, yeah, which I like the way they they exposit everyone's backstory in like very yeah. subtle and quick ways. Um, is yeah, there was like some deal that was supposed to go down between. Uh, Bill Duke's character and Ray Liotta's character and I believe Don Cheadle was the person who set it up and somewhere along the line it went horribly wrong and you know got they you know turned into a shootout okay and then to save his own skin and because they were going to blame it on Don Cheadle because he set it up even though it wasn't his fault it went wrong um, he took Bill Duke's code book to as kind of insurance okay. to make sure that you know they wouldn't come after him i forgot there's a, i will say there's a lot that i had to remember in that movie they don't they they do a good job of reinforcing a lot of it because every like it, it'll have been like 10 or 20 minutes into the movie and then they'll they'll mention the code book mm-hmm. so then by the end he's like oh yeah the code book is the thing it's like his his invincibility armor you know it's like oh we yeah. need to get that code book back um you know, I, I know that I've talked a lot about, like, I've been kind of harsh on the beginning and the end of the movie. So I do want to say one thing that I think the movie does really well, which in addition to what we were saying about, or what you were saying about the exposition and how they deliver the backstories in a way that doesn't cause, like, the train to stop. Mm-hmm. They also do a good job of building up characters in our minds or building up the thoughts of characters before they actually show them. So the way that they introduce characters purely using like dialogue and backstory and history because they were building up i I, I really like that i knew frank or i knew matt damon was going to be in the movie but i kept wondering who he was going to be um and so when they built up frank and they're talking about frank and it's like oh yeah frank put the hit out frank is ray liotta i know i know but i thought i was like oh is frank going to be matt damon and it turns out to be ray liotta and i'm like fuck that's brilliant casting (laughs) But, like, by the time you're actually introduced to Frank, you're already afraid of him. And then you see that it's Ray Liotta, and you're even more afraid. Mainly because you're afraid he's going to laugh. But um, <laughs> he looks like a demon when he laughs. Um, but, yeah. And the same with... Uh, I, I don't remember what Bill Duke's character name it's is. It's like Aldrich just, or something. Yes. Yeah. I th- Yes. That sounds about right. Which I always um, think is fake, because I think of uh, St. Aldrich of the Deep from Dark Souls 3. <laughs> like I was like, that's Dark not Souls a person's players. name. That's a Dark Souls boss name. <laughs> um, Aldrich is a great name, though. Like, that's a great name. But yeah, he, they built him up so much that when you finally see him, you're like, nice. All right, yeah. cool. So I, I, I think the way they build up characters, the way they handle exposition, um, is really good. And there's like, there's a handful of things that Soderbergh does just like he's just so natural at doing oh it's aldrick 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 watkins it's it's still an awesome name (laughs) although if you asked me to say if you asked if i knew what don Cheadle and uh, benicio del toro's characters names were i wouldn't be able to tell you oh it's uh del toro he's like something russo ronald russo i have the i have it up here actually while i was watching the movie i did know their names because don Cheadle was kurt and benicio del toro was ronald 
and John Hamm playing the cop again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I you know, I know I've been harsh on the movie, but like I'm glad it's I'm glad we have it. To be honest, like when you t- when you were like, um, "Hey, do you want to do No Sudden Move?" I was like, "Heck yeah!" I love talking about Soderbergh movies, <laughs> and this this one didn't disappoint. Like it's it's super good, and I would totally recommend watching it on HBO Max. Like my qualms are are minimal, and it's definitely worth the what two hours that it takes to uh, to unwind the plot. Is it it's even really two hours? Uh, oh, it's just so. under. Oh, just it is. Oh, one hours. hour fifty five minutes. Well, hey, you know, it's that's not a lot of time to devote to it. It's good. It's and it's <laughs> it, it's totally worth it. Like, I to the point where I didn't realize it was shot during COVID time until I did research on it. So mm. I know that the camera work and everything was really claustrophobic, and um, and he maybe borrowed a little bit too much from when he was shooting The Informant. It had kind of a similar style as the movie The Informant did, but. Um, but like for the most part, I didn't even realize that it was that it was all shot like less than a year ago. Yeah. Just, you know, it's like it's incredible. Maybe that's why there's no one in it because it was shot during COVID. That's that's why there's no there's not a lot of background extras. Yeah. That's like one of the once they started ramping up production for television and stuff like on a lot of things, you could look at the background and just see that it was just like a bunch of empty space because everyone was like okay, you got to get your COVID shots. And even then we got to keep everyone six feet apart and everyone's wearing masks. So, you know, they had to limit how many background extras they could have in a building. Probably why. (laughs) And then we didn't talk about this, but he also like, he makes movies in areas that are like underserved or like kind of interesting. Like this one takes place in Michigan, which I guess is um, there's more and more productions happening in Michigan. Cause I always Mm -hmm. think of uh, don't breathe as like, it looks like a post-apocalyptic city also known as michigan it's like yeah it's just detroit it's just detroit um and like it is kind of it is kind of cool to see a movie that does have that background information even if the background information is handled in like you said in sort of a ham-fisted way Mm um i think it does add enough texture to the movie yeah it's good it's i mean yeah it just has this very like stripped down feel but it is a it's a really good crime thriller. Uh, it's got a lot of good performances. It is not as stylish as m- a lot of Soderbergh's best movies, but it is still pretty stylish. Yeah. Reasonably stylish. Um, but yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I liked it. I it Like you said, it's a solid witness. I would agree it's a solid witness. Um, so definitely go check that out on apparently my favorite streaming service, HBO max while it's still there. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think it's, I think it's there to stay. No, I I mean, Um, HBO max, I believe is the distributor. So, okay. All right. It is an HBO max original or whatever the fuck they call it. Oh, you know, we don't, we don't ever talk about this, but like good on Soderbergh for finding these avenues. Like he seems like a guy who just wants to make movies. He doesn't necessarily care about the distribution as long as he can make them. So you mm-hmm. know what? If HBO Max and Netflix are going to throw a couple million dollars at him to quickly make his movies, you know, all more power to him, dude. The guy's been in the <laughs> business so long. You know, he's made, he made his retirement money on Ocean's 11, 12, and 13. Like, He's good. Mm-hmm. He won his academy. He won his Oscar. Um, like, good for him for wanting to keep working. And if HBO Max is going to give him money to do that, like, honestly, 
it's smart for HBO Max to do that because it's not going to cost them a whole lot in the long run. And they're going to have like a bunch of hardcore people who will continue to, to come back and watch his stuff. Yeah. So it's like a win-win. <laughs> if they wanted to uh, get more information or content from us, Gabe, where would they go? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> underthewheels.com is the website for all things Under the Wheels. There's an Under the Wheels Facebook page. we got a YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, it's on uh, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And uh, if you want to send us anything, there's podcast at underthewheels.com. Nice. Um, any parting thoughts before we go? Hmm. Everyone should wa- like. Everyone should just go watch the Limey Out of Sight and Ocean's Eleven. Those are three incredible movies. Yeah, they are. They're all really good. And that's actually it's like if you watch those three movies, you can basically skip going to film school. Because they teach all of the theory you ever need to know about making movies in those three films. Kind of do. <laughs> like the only one that's missing is horror. That's it. Mm-hmm. But like, I was just thinking about like the the weird, um, or I'll say the groovy flashback scenes in the Limey. That like, it's just like if you don't know how they do it, you're just like, man, how did they get young Terrence Stamp in this movie? fuck dude it's so cool like all those little things i think they did that they also had like um uh peter fonda right or, or is he the is he the bad guy in it he, peter fonda is the villain in the limey yeah and they and have don Cheadle like, is the villain in out of sight yeah and then he's a good guy <laughs> in oceans, in oceans 11. 11 and he's the he finally graduated to main character in uh in no sudden well he um, Don Cheadle's usually he's always pretty good in Soderbergh stuff because he was also mm-hmm. in Traffic. Hmm. He and Luis Guzman were in Traffic together. So oh, Luis um, Guzman, I miss that guy. Yeah, I know he's he. I mean, like, it, like he looks like he would solid. mostly be in terrible comedies, but he seems to like. I only ever see him in like Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Soderbergh movie. <laughs> <laughs> He was uh he was the main servant in um Count of Monte Cristo. He played as Jacopo, who is more mm-hmm. of like a composite character in the movie. But like he still has his like really heavy American British accent and he's like he's like Zatara, with all this money you are the richest man I have ever seen in all my life. And like Kevin Reynolds is like, Yeah, I, I wasn't gonna try and like get around his accent, like, you know, but there's something about Luis Guzman that's just really charming to watch and <laughs> something really authentic about him that like in the movie you you totally get the feeling that he and uh, Jim Caviezel have been friends for like you know, like five or six years and like that they're you know that he'd do anything for him. And that was I was like, Yeah, you know what, dude? Luis Guzman is like He's just really solid in like a bunch of stuff he did. He's he makes a cameo appearance in Black Rain, and I was like, <laughs> I wish you were in this more. But oh, I, I would also actually add um, if you're watching Out of Sight, um, The Limey, and Ocean's Eleven, you might as well throw Logan Lucky in there for for a little bit of a change of pace, just just yeah. in case you need some some an, another kind of comedy in there. I would say. I was gonna say I think. Logan Lucky is still my favorite of his post-retirement movies. Uh, I would say 
it's definitely out of the ones that I've seen, which are few. It's but to me, it's his most. It's one of his most watchable by far. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the movie that I became an Adam Driver fan hmm. because he's just so good in that. So I know. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that wraps up this tangent. I feel like we talk about we end up talking about Steven Soderbergh quite a lot on on the podcast. I don't know. I'm not sure we do actually. We probably don't talk about him as much as we should, but we've mentioned, we've either mentioned him or like, or have kind of gone on a deep dive into some stuff that he's done. At I want to say in at least like five to seven episodes, hmm. because you watched the laundromat, um, and then I talked about Haywire, and every now and then we'll kind of like we'll broach it or we'll talk about like George Clooney, and we'll inevitably talk a little bit about Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. So basically like Steven Soderbergh, if you want to explain the industry to us, like we'd be happy to talk to you. I would actually be thrilled if he ever did. So there you go. Open invitation <laughs> from, from a podcast that has maybe like four listeners, you know, Hey, hit mm-hmm. us up sometime and uh, it, it'll only do terrible things to your career. So, you know, with an invitation like that, why not? It'd be really fun to talk to him though. And he's from Atlanta. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia. There you go. There you go. There's the connection. Um, anyway, any last any last comments? Nope. In that case, I'm Matthew. And I'm Gabe. And you've just been under the wheels. Oh, my God. Soderbergh was an executive producer on Bill and Ted Face the Music. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed Solomon wrote Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure. That's right. That's right. And Men in Black. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was going to say is Benicio Del Toro has also been sucking the fat out of all of his co-stars. I know. Damn. He's been throwing his gut everywhere, too. <laughs> he was so thin in, like, The Usual Suspects. Uh, it was he 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 stayed thin a little bit with all of his love into Scarlett Johansson, and then you know, after they broke up, it's just not he's never been the same. Actually, that, that's a weird thing to say because like I really liked Benicio del Toro in the Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God! Like, oh Lord, that was bad. With his stuttering Stanley, which is probably a a a callback to the Usual Suspects, but. Um, and he's good in Sicario. I didn't see Soldado, but oh, oh God, I forgot he was in Avengers: Infinity War. But he's also been like really solid and stuff. So I used to get him and Andy Garcia confused, and I was like, why doesn't Andy Garcia get more roles? And I was like, oh, because Andy Garcia is only an okay actor, and Benicio del Toro is actually a really good actor. He is, except in Star Wars. <laughs>